0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on addressing the clinical operations workforce gap from the 2023 d Disruptive Innovations to Modernize Clinical Research Conference. For more information on the d Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit dpharmconference.com or theconferenceforum.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast.
1: So this is a workforce gap panel Um, we're not going to go into the details of the background or everyone's bios you can read all of those because we have a tight amount of time Um, as we did prep for this panel um, three themes came out Um, the first is the theme on regulatory frameworks digital biomarkers implications and implementation space so we're going to start with that second theme was technologies and irbs right in particular how you implement in a study how you build the capacity to review these at irb level and then workforce implications so that's what i think we're here to talk about um what i'd like to do is ask a question and i'll have so we will sort of go down and back uh through that we do not have time for detailed um questions because it's only 30 minutes so apologies in advance you'll need to catch us um, at the end of the panel So to start with, as as we think through regulatory frameworks for DCTs, DHTs, and in particular, how they hit the workforce implications, right? Shoybal, I think you you brought this up um, in the conversation. What's missing in the way that we assess the regulatory framework? What's missing to give us comfort to make some of these transitions, especially in
2: workforce space? Sure, and I think for regulatory frameworks in particular, we have to recognize that The regulatory frameworks right now that we have in place are gray, in some cases non-existent, and they're not harmonious across all the geographies where we tend to operate. And that makes it difficult both for a study team trying to design a protocol equally as implications on a study team trying to operationalize that protocol. Um, For biomarkers in particular, we have to consider that we're trying to condense all of the research and development that typically goes into a a normal marker, normal being genetic or, you know what I mean, uh, into the development cycle of a molecule. And that makes for really, really tight timelines. And all of this has an implication on the workforce because they're, they're challenged with both trying to bring this into a study and then to operationalize the study. And it calls for decisions to be made that some teams are just not ready to make. What kind of decisions? Unpack that real quick. So in terms of whether this can be done or not, whether my choice of DHT is going to be usable in all the geographies that I plan to use it in, uh, whether the device is actually cleared for its intended use, all of these decisions call for skill sets that typically don't exist in study teams today. Mm -hmm. Belen, do you want to jump in?
3: Yes, so the... um, the approach that I wanted to give to this to this question, right, is, is the following, which is at the end of the day, as we are trying to decentralize our clinical trials, there is a few considerations that from a workforce perspective they need to be able to address. And at this point there are no answers, right? Outside of the regulatory framework. And the way I, I I group them, right, is in almost like like three buckets. One of them is that is the justification about decentralized elements in a trial, right? So you find yourself as a PI, if you want just to set up that type of trial, that you need to justify the, why it's safe and adequate to decentralize certain pieces of, of clinical trials, right? And with the reduction of costs is usually not like a, I mean, it's, it's usually, I and mean, it's not a reason just to justify in front of an IRB that those elements of a clinical trial are guaranteed to be decentralized, right? So that is something that has a lot of implications into this type of adoption and also who is in the other side to spearhead the decentralization of clinical trials. The second bucket, it's around, at the end of the day, the responsibilities as sponsors, as investigators of trials, right? And the more we start decentralizing, and this gets into the regulatory frameworks or obstacles that we have now, you find yourself shifting a lot of the burden and responsibility of critical aspects of standard clinical trials to the patient side, right? So there is a lot of questions there around, is the patient, uh, the more that we decentralize the recruitment, uh, how can we assess that the patient's ability to participate in the trial, it's, it's in reality aligned with the protocol requirements? Second is the patient will be the one reporting safety events, so is that the right entry site for safety events? So these type of data elements, they are very, very important, right? And this is usually what is getting into this gray zone that we find. And the third element is the data quality, right? So at the end of the day, we will talk probably later around like digital endpoints and digital biomarkers. But... The framework is not there, especially it's not fit for purpose, just to be able to move these biomarkers throughout the the approval process as a standard biomarker. That is critical and one of the the largest obstacles from how we address these type of issues.
1: Great, right. Kimberly, and also you'd mentioned digital biomarkers in the prep call. So if you want to pull on that thread,
3: yeah,
0: exactly. So maybe I'll just add to some of those thoughts that I um, completely agree with. I mean, I think that the regulators also, you know, have a very important role here to come along with us. There's a lot of um, discussion and encouragement around the the development of digital biomarkers, but. Um, What we see in reality sometimes is not exactly what we're hearing um, from the regulators. And maybe I'll give a a couple of examples. Um, Certainly during COVID, you know, we we did shift a lot of activities into patients' homes where we could. Uh, And we had a couple of instances, actually, where um, agencies asked us to remove that data Uh, post hoc. So, you know, there is a lot of encouragement. Um, There is a lot of uh, emphasis on on the digital biomarker uh, development, but the regulators also probably have some skill sets that need to be further developed um, so that we can do this more hand in hand and actually a little bit more efficiently and expeditiously. Um, Can you give a
1: little more detail on what what kind of skill sets would you like to see on the regulatory side?
0: Well, I think from a digital biomarker standpoint, specifically anyway, I mean, I can speak, I can speak about Sanofi and, and what we have here. I mean, clinical operations staff are not suited historically to be able to be um, thinking about how health technologies work, how to validate a, a digital biomarker. Um, And something that we've actually done internally is look at different sorts of staff. We had um, a shift in our portfolio recently, and we moved a bit away from diabetes and cardiovascular work into more um, specific specialty care areas, and we had some research centers that were um, not needed as much anymore. And we reached into that um, pool of workers, and actually pulled some of them into our digital biomarker staff. And it worked out so well for everyone. I mean, not every single person, but they just had a very different skill set in terms of being able to think about validation methodology um, and digital health technologies from a very scientific standpoint um, that really supplemented uh, our internal staff. Belen, Shogel, any more
3: reactions? Sure, yes. I think to, to your the digital endpoint uh, comment and digital biomarkers, I think there's so many implications here, right? Uh, from the Moderna perspective, as you know, we have a pretty solid pipeline coming up on rare and, and therapeutics. So when you think about a rare condition and the need of rare conditions from different endpoints and biomarkers, it's extremely hard, and many of those conditions... Uh, to access to those uh, standard biomarkers, blood-based or standard physiological biomarkers is extremely challenging, right? Especially understanding that these kids are very sick and everything around implications of those families. So there is a plethora of different type of digital biomarkers, most of them leveraging sensors and more more of the smart tech type of uh, technology that is leading to surrogate metrics that inform about levels of lethargy and activity of those kids, that they can absolutely function as a way for us to evaluate whether or not a therapy is effective or not. But when you think about the road that we have ahead of us in order for us to be able to validate and standardize those, those biomarkers, is, it's onerous at the very least, but this is what would be our call for action, right? Because at the end of the day, the, the, the medicines are supporting those kids and the, the alternative is not is not ideal, right? So that's, hopefully that will be one of the core aspects that we can leverage as part of justification, right? Which is at the end of the day, how we can provide effective access to these medicines to kids without having them going to hospitals with what entails, they, 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 Yes, I mean, they, on, a, on an on a basis.
2: Yeah, just, just really quick, and to add to what Kim and Bilin said, I think what we're really seeing today is it always took a village to run a clinical trial, but what we have now is a set of new skills or disciplines now coming into that we require, sorely require, because DCTs and DHTs, they are technology-based and fundamentally require you to have a different kind of expertise, and that's just missing. That's missing right now within the sponsor industry, it's missing in the CRO industry, and that's what we're all struggling with: is how do we bring this promise that, that you just pointed to 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 patients?
1: Well, let, let's pull on that a little bit. So we're going to talk about technology, and again, this is a workforce gap panel. Um, one of the things that we've learned certainly is that you know the language of DevOps and product operations and ML ops is not the same language as clinical operations. And so, Treble, you want to start with sort of talking about like what does it look like from a technology perspective when you're matrixing that into your workforce? and they'll go back and down again, and, and we can get into IRBs right as, as we
2: get through that. Sure. Um, I think just as we were talking before, one of the things that we did, we, what we did at Takeda really was kind of build out a team of the skill sets we felt were needed to work with study teams, to help them figure out how best to write a protocol, what can actually um, what What can be enhanced by technology what can't be enhanced by technology and this this turns out to be a pretty motley mix. So you have biomedical engineers, you have software developers, you have people who come from the the more legacy backgrounds to, in order to explain sort of what the regulations driving it are and then you have the the protocol teams themselves you needed all of them together, and this isn't a question of writing a protocol first and then figuring out how to add technology to it. You have to start really early. So that's, that's how we started addressing it at, at Takeda. And even then, you find that when you take it to sites, you have to be able to answer site questions. Um, and sometimes the regulators have questions, and you have to be prepared to answer those. And suddenly, you find yourself in the middle of uh, legal privacy Data transfer situations; these are not typical questions that you come across in a study, and that's the workforce gap
3: that I'm referring to. Yeah. Do you want to go ahead? <laughs> that's good. So um, I agree, uh, and I think the the way the way that Moderna we are going at this at this gap that we have at this point that is a natural gap, just because these are emerging technologies and emerging uh, use cases within the clinical trials domain is embedding this type of New skills within the functional the functional domains that that need to exist in a in a clinical development and, and operations teams right, it's hard from a workforce perspective to find these individuals. We are looking at unicorns at this point, or the bilinguals that they are able just to understand what are some of the implications from the technology, at the same time that how that technology is effective indeed, just to execute and deliver in a GCP environment, like what we need to deliver us as a sponsors in this case, right? So we are growing that type of workforce and, and, and grooming that workforce within the functions because that's what will guarantee that we have a solid pipeline eh, of, of leaders and, and professionals in the, in the shorter term. But I, I would say that ourselves in pharma, we have experience on this on the commercial side, right? So on the commercial side, we already experienced this gap and now it's coming into the development sec- uh, area. So we have a lot of learnings and within our own walls into how we started just moving on the commercial side more to traditional omnichannel approaches. And it was the similar gap and the same change management had to take place, right? We started embedded digital marketeers and they started just embedding all of that into their own workforce and their own workforce development. But there was a significant talent shift that had to happen in the commercial side, especially accelerated through COVID, because there was the traditional channels of um, sales and engagement; they were obsolete at this point. I think now we are we are coming a little bit behind. Uh, uh, but, but short soon into, into the same type of enablement from clinical development with different implications obviously because there is different implications from a research perspective, but it's the same type of challenge and process, the one that we are, that we are now accelerating
0: yeah um, absolutely I, I mean, maybe I would just also add maybe some things that that we 're specifically doing um, within our company to address is and i don 't know if anyone has seen our CEO um, has been very bold. Paul Hudson has been very bold in his statements recently about um, Santa Fe taking the lead in terms of gen AI and um, and the, and the next sort of revolution to come, and so we we take that very seriously. And I think as an industry, we don't do a great job of setting sort of the standard of what those what those skill sets and capabilities and core competencies need to be, and then having direct plans to sort of implement them. So we've taken, um, we've taken a good amount of time to do a gap assessment within the company to really see where we need to fill those, fill those gaps. Um, and we have um, loads and loads and loads of, you know, both internal expertise and external expertise coming in to sort of upskill our entire population. Now, I don't think that that's going to be the answer alone, but it will certainly be part of the answer of how we're going to address the gap.
3: Yeah. Yes, no, I, I think you, 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 you bring up like a very important point, which is, I, I would say it because it's, I think the, the elephant in everyone's room now, which is how we're going to leverage AI and other foundational models, right? It's everywhere. And we are all trying just to understand what is the best way that we can use these tools, especially because these tools are growing and evolving that quickly that it's just every new version of GPT just gives a whole, it's an exponential growth of capabilities, the ones that we have. So what, there is something that it's, it's, uh, it's at, the, at the, every one of us here in our own companies have access and Moderna definitely has taken a very strong stand is around how to make sure that from our own employees and workforce, It's a very important investment, company-wise, to make sure that everyone is very comfortable with these type of technologies. We have done, as many um, companies have already publicly announced, that we have our own version of ChatGPT, that it's make sure that it can operate within our environment, right? So uh, from that perspective, we are actively training, and there is significant hours of training, and I can attest that because I've been part of those. Uh, across, first of all, the whole leadership team of the company, but then it's rolling through the different teams to make sure that everyone understands how to use these technologies. There is no other way just to try just to understand that piece. The only caveat that I would add over this, which is important, right, is that the speed of, um, of features that these type of models are bringing is just even surpass even more the ability for us to to, to, to keep up. And uh, for the new features that these type of models are opening up, for purely productivity perspective, I think that's something that it's it's a whole new domain even in a in a chief health a, a, in a in a chief human resources officer, right? Which is how we're gonna keep up to make sure that everyone is it's up to date with all of these tools that we all have available.
2: Yeah. Say, I mean, I, I think before we can even get to machine learning approaches and how it helped clinical um, development, I, we're right now at the point where we're just trying to get a handle on how to reliably, reproducibly, scalably run technology-enabled trials. And where we are, Takeda went all in after COVID. And we actually we actually put a lot of effort and time in, and, and managed to Embed decentralized elements and 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 make remote site visits real in a large number of our studies, but we, what we also found and, and this reflects what Sean was talking about earlier is you reach this point where you saturate patients you saturate sites with technology because it 's naive to assume that if you plug two things together they 're going to work they don 't always work and um, and suddenly experience becomes a term that, you know, experience is also a very product term, as, as yes. many of us are familiar with. And, and you have to start caring about that. At what point, what is the need, what is driving, what is actually beneficial? And that's kind of where we are today is let's see if we can get it to a point of sufficiency and then just improve on it so that we can keep doing this. So the majority of our efforts right now are just getting these things to work. Right, and that once you get past that point, you get to data.
1: Well, and so so again, let's like, let uh, maybe not go to IRBs yet and talk about workforce because you know I, I tried to hire software engineers in the last couple of years, and simply getting the jobs leveled at the correct level, yeah. right? Like I, I, had, I had a job at a, an assistant manager level, I'm recruiting someone who is a senior director level in the insurance industry, and I can't get them over the line even to an assistant director, mm-hmm. and you lose the candidate. So how do you hire, like I heard both different scientific skill sets and validation of digital biomarkers and technical skill sets that, that the bureaucracy of the pharma system doesn't know how to value. How do you, how do you hire into that? I'll let any of you go first. Kimberly, do to go
0: first? Yeah. So maybe maybe I'll just talk a little bit about um, maybe some of the different ways that we're approaching it, and I th- I really think that that's the key. Is it's not one size fits all. It's it's going to be a whole you know myriad of solutions. Um, we we've had a lot of success with fellowship programs. So working with um, you know universities that are in close proximity to some of our offices to offer fellowships. Um, and you, you really can tap into a completely different skill set that way. You know it's a win-win situation. We're getting a resource at a relatively lower cost, relatively, I would say. Um, and, and those people are getting experience and in a, in, in a number of situations that's led to full-time employment after. Um, I think that um, you know, like I said before, tapping into even internally, into a completely different, skill set has been very um productive for for us as well i mean i think one thing that's it's 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 interesting to think about i mean diversity i mean you know it's a it's a it's a whole nother topic how we need to have diversity in our clinical trials but for us even thinking internally you know, how can we make that happen in our clinical trials when we don't have that even in our company? So we've spent a lot of time, you know, internally trying to think about diversity and again, looking for candidates in different places where we where we normally would look.
3: Yes. Um, I think we have a very similar approach in the sense that we believe that having access and tapping, at the very least, in this Boston ecosystem to the the, the vibrant uh, um, academic community that we have is definitely one of the one of the strategies that we are using. Tapping into these interns, co-ops, because in reality, it's great experience for them. It frames uh, their education with a particular use case and also it can give them a potential career growth for them. So that's one, uh, one layer. The other one is that in reality the challenge, and this is to add on the other one, is that how we level up these roles, how we, how we uh, define these roles in a way that we are not penalized based on the way that traditionally pharma has been identifying them is uh, this has been challenging in general and I think it's across industries uh, as I talk with other peers on how we level and identify these roles so they are competitive in the market at the same time that we keep the same an equity internally so that is the balance and usually what we are all struggling around how you 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 keep those two uh, at pair the reality is that the the competition is high because it's not only at the pharmaceutical sector. We are competing now with tech, uh, tech, health tech. More and more tech companies are entering into healthcare, uh, especially here in the United States. So the reality is that there is um, a whole different assessment that we need to take about these roles that require a different type of... of functional type of, of, of leveling that we'll have to take into account. This is something that from, from the clinical development side, we have partnered as well from the IT side, because there is the same type of unique skills that there are going to be needed and competition, so there is an opportunity just to level up certain roles in a way that then you are not penalizing that at the same time that you are keeping internal equity and, and consistency, right? So that's something as well that it's important uh, that they, unless we level them up, it's going to be extremely hard uh, just to compete. Because these roles are really in a whole different position and, and compensation layers that we have at this point in traditional. Yeah, I mean, I had, to, I had
1: to use the word architect seven times in the job description yeah. for a software developer mm-hmm. to get it leveled appropriately. Yeah. Sorry, Sean sure, go ahead.
2: No, I mean, I think this is a struggle we all face, and I'd say the first thing you need is a really, really good HR partner. But um, but I think what we are lucky um, with is we we all work for relatively large companies then the challenge we're really facing is how do you bring these roles into functions where they didn't exist before so we've had some luck you know clearly looking at your it or technology organization but also looking within the tech ops part of your company right for example manufacturing has a lot of scale out and very experienced engineering skills so they have job families for them and, and That's the beginning point for figuring out how to level them equally across the company. At Takeda, we tend to see—we actually tend to see a lot of transfers across these groups, and and that's really helpful because now you're building meaningful career paths for these individuals. Rather, uh, the the worst place to be is an N of one in a group, right? And and you clearly want to avoid that.
0: I was going to just say something very similar is what we've had more luck is maybe approaching it at a higher level with a bigger group in mind, right? Almost sort of like blowing up the um, the standard and not on a sort of a person-by-person um, basis. I mean, maybe you could use a person-by-person basis as proof that it could work, right? But then really working with a strong HR partner and having senior management buy-in makes all of the difference. And then approaching it like a, this is a whole, you know, new group of skill sets, um, capabilities that we need to, we need to invest in to, for the future.
3: Yeah. Yes, that's exactly the way that we have approached it, in the same that rather than going, because as as I mentioned at the beginning, you need to have these bilinguals right embedded into all of the different functions, because that's the way that in reality you effectively transform, digitize, and you're able to leverage this type of technology. So rather than going one by one, that every time you almost need to, to justify Like we have just a step back, think about what are holistically as a clinical development department, what are the skills that they are going to be needed? Those skills were formalized, kind of like consolidated into a whole set of new families. And one thing is the leveling that we have already covered that. But the important piece is that this is a group of individuals that they are belong to the same function. It's important that you have the ability as a career growth, right? So we have done that career growth within the business and you can grow into the tech, into the tech layer, but at the end of the day, once you have that group, then you can embed it in the different functions. The recruitment is very specific, and that's why I was talking about the unicorns, because you cannot afford to recruit just for technical individuals. They need to understand the lab uh, uh, workflows or the clinical operations execution workflow, right? But once you just get there, then all of those individuals, they can function across uh, the different functional domains to really being able to connect the dots but unless you don't define that as a family tree and and indeed a functional group that represents a whole new capability it's very hard because then to your point it's an end of one trying just to move the needle in a vast uh, department and it's 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 hard i mean it's hard because this is the whole change that we have ahead of us Hmm.
1: so we're we're almost at the end um i'm going to ask each of our panelists to give us a call to action or a conclusion. We've got about a minute each. Kimberly, we'll start with you and come on down.
0: Sure, I mean, I would say, um, I mean, everyone in this room has a, a role to play here, right? Think about how we can encourage new people to join our, organiza- our, our field of work, right? So starting with high school students, right? Are there internships that you could offer? Medical schools, is there training that you could do? Um, nursing schools, right? Fellowships. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's a whole host of areas where we need to make sure that we're educating the next generation um, of workers and getting them interested um, in the field.
3: Yes, I think... um... Uh, another call of action just for to do not repeat that that's a very important one no but the second one is just really tagging to the networks uh, of all of us I think we are all going through the same transformation so I really uh, plugged in into a lot of my peers into what is the best way just to go at this type of transformations that we need to do now and the best way that we are leading change throughout the organizations, right? So I hope that we don't, we don't need to do all of this uh, alone and this is something that we can all help, help each other in the sense about what is the best way just to go through this, because this is very new for clinical development, just to add in this type of digital uh, skills, resources, engineers within the functional domains and that's something that is available to all of us. It's just, it's happening as you can hear in every single, the organization. everyone is trying to figure it out by themselves. So just tap your, your networks uh, just to, to, to avoid that.
2: <laughs> so I'll key off of that and, and, and just say that, you know, our role in society is to bring medicines to patients that can be delivered in the standard of care. And if you look at standard of care today, healthcare has embraced technology and digital more than clinical research and development has. And if if we look at our personal experiences with our healthcare providers, we can see how much of this interaction is now mediated through technology. And that expectation is coming to, to participants in our studies. That expectation is also coming to sites. And we we have to embrace it. And change is always hard, but we have to embrace it. I I don't think this is a one-size-fits-all or it's the answer to everything. It's going to have to become a tool in our toolbox that we learn how to use and when to use it right. I
1: don't think we can end it any better than that. So can we have a a round of applause for our panelists, please?
0: We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information on the DFARM conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, visit dfarmconference.com dot com or theconferenceforum.org. dot org. Thank you for listening.